Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. As today's intro music, produced and licensed by St. Louis University, suggests, this episode is a bit of departure. Hal Bush is a professor of English at St. Louis U, as well as a beloved member of the Twain Studies community. Hal is one of the foremost authorities on Twain's engagements with theology, and particularly with American religious practice. Having authored Mark Twain and the Spiritual Crisis of His Age, and Continuing Bonds with the Dead, Parental Grief in 19th Century American Authors. Hal has also co-edited the collected letters between Twain and his longtime friend, Hartford clergyman Joseph Twitchell. On January 21st of this year, Hal fell at his home in St. Louis and suffered a traumatic brain injury. He has spent most of the ensuing months in a coma. You can read more about his condition, as described by his niece, Chelsea Franco, by visiting the GoFundMe link in the show notes or at marktwainstudies.com backslash Hal Bush. The doctors and therapists for patients recovering from severe brain injuries frequently recommend that they be read to by friends and family. But naturally, during the coronavirus pandemic, visitation to medical facilities are dramatically limited. On today's episode, we have collected recordings of some of Hal's favorite works read by his fellow scholars. This drive was organized by two of his friends, Joe Cecilla and Tracy Wooster, on behalf of his wife, Hiroko Bush. Mark Twain tells his friend, those who have a sick man's true interests at heart will forbear sympathy and bring him surreptitious soups and fried oysters and other trifles that the doctors have tabooed. The best we can offer is a literary feast. Get well, Hal. See you soon. Hey, Hal. This is Ben Click, and I'd like to read you Chapter 2 from Innocence Abroad. You're overly familiar with the book, so you know what Chapter 1 has done. So, enjoy. Occasionally, during the following month, I dropped in at 117 Wall Street to inquire how the repairing and refurnishing of the vessel was coming on how additions to the passenger list were averaging, how many people the committee were decreeing not select every day, and banishing in sorrow and tribulation. I was glad to know that we were to have a little printing press on board and issue a daily newspaper of our own. I was glad to learn that our piano, our parlor organ, and our melodeon were to be the best instruments of the kind that could be had in the market. I was proud to observe that among our excursionists were three ministers of the gospel, eight doctors, 16 or 18 ladies, several military and naval chieftains with sounding titles, an ample crop of professors of various kinds, and a gentleman who had Commissioner of the United States of America to Europe, Asia, and Africa thundering after his name in one awful blast. I had carefully prepared myself to 
take rather a backseat in that ship because of the uncommonly select material that would alone be permitted to pass through the camel's eye of that committee on credentials. I had schooled myself to expect an imposing array of military and naval heroes and to have to set that back seat still further back in consequence of it. Maybe. But I state frankly that I was all unprepared for this crusher. I fell under that titular avalanche of a torn and blighted thing. I said that if the potentate must go over in our ship, why, I suppose he must, but that to my thinking, when the United States considered it necessary to send a dignitary of that tonnage across the ocean, it would be in better taste and safer to take him apart and cart him over in sections in several ships. Ah, if I had only known then that he was only a common mortal and that his mission had nothing more overpowering about it than the collecting of seeds and uncommon yams and extraordinary cabbages and peculiar bullfrogs for that poor, useless, innocent, mildewed old fossil, the Smithsonian Institute, I would have felt so much relieved. During that memorable month, I basked in the happiness of being, for once in my life, drifting with the tide of a great popular movement. Everybody was going to Europe. I, too, was going to Europe. Everybody was going to the famous Paris Exposition. I, too, was going to the Paris Exposition. The steamship lines were carrying Americans out of the various ports of the country at the rate of four or 5,000 a week in the aggregate. If I met a dozen individuals during that month who are not going to Europe shortly, I have no distinct remembrance of it now. I walked about the city a good deal with a young man, uh, with a young Mr. Blucher, who was booked for the excursion. He was confiding, good-natured, unsophisticated, companionable, but he was not a man to set the river on fire. He had the most extraordinary notions about this European exodus and came at last to consider the whole nation as packing up for immigration to France. We stamped it, stopped into a store on Broadway one day where he bought a handkerchief. And when the man could not make change, Mr. B said, Never mind. I'll hand it to you in Paris. But I'm not going to Paris. How is it? What did I understand you to say? I said I'm not going to Paris. Not going to Paris? Not go... Well then, where's the nation, where the nation are you going to? Nowhere at all. Not anywhere whatsoever? Not any place on earth but this? Not any place at all, but just this. Stay here all summer. My comrade took his purchase and walked out of the store without a word, walked out with an injured look upon his countenance. Up the street a piece he broke silence and said impressively, It was a lie. That is my opinion of it. In the fullness of time, the ship was ready to receive her passengers. I was introduced to the young gentleman who was to be my roommate and found him to be intelligent, cheerful of spirit, unselfish, full of generous impulses, patient, considerate, and wonderfully good-natured. Not any passenger that sailed in the Quaker City will withhold his endorsement of what I have just said. 
We selected a stateroom forward of the wheel on the starboard side, below decks. It had two berths in it, dismal dead light, a sink with a washbowl in it, and a long, sumptuously cushioned locker, which was to do service as a sofa, partly and partly as a hiding place for our things. Notwithstanding all this furniture, there was still room to turn around in, but not to swing a cat in, at least with entire security to the cat. However, the room was large for the state ship's stateroom and was in every way satisfactory. The vessel was appointed to sail on a certain Saturday early in June. A little afternoon on that distinguished Saturday, I reached the ship and went on board. <clears throat> All was bustle and confusion. I have seen that remark before somewhere. The pier was crowded with carriages and men. Passengers were arriving and hurrying on board. The vessel's decks were encumbered with trunks and valises. Groups of excursionists arrayed in unattractive traveling costumes were moping about in a drizzling rain and looking as droopy and woebegone as so many molting chickens. The gallant flag was up, but it was under the spell too and hung limp and disheartened by the mast. Although, altogether, it was the bluest, blue, bluest spectacle. It was a pleasure excursion. There was no gain saying that, because the program had said so. It was so nominated in the bond. But it surely hadn't the general aspect of one. Finally, above the banging and rumbling and shouting and hissing of steam rang the order to cast off. A sudden rush to the gangways, a scampering ashore of visitors, a revolution of wheels, and we were off. The picnic was begun. Two very mild cheers went up from the dripping crowd on the pier. We answered them gently from the slippery decks. The flag made an effort to wave and failed. The battery of guns spanked not. The ammunition was out. We steamed down to the foot of the harbor and came to anchor. It was still raining. And not only raining, but storming. Outside, we could see ourselves that there was a tremendous sea on. We must lie still in the calm harbor till the storm should abate. Our passengers hail from 15 states. Only a few of them had ever been to sea before. Manifestly, it would not do to pit them against a full-blown tempest until they had got their sea legs. Toward evening, the two steam tugs that had accompanied us with rollicking champagne party, uh, a champagne party of young New Yorkers on board who wished to bid farewell to one of our number in due and ancient form, departed, and we were alone on the deep. On deep, five fathoms, and anchored fast to the bottom, and out in the solemn rain at that. This was pleasuring with a vengeance. It was an appropriate relief when the gong sounded for prayer meeting. The first Saturday night of any other pleasure excursion might have been devoted to whist and dancing, but I submit it to the unprejudiced mind if it would have been in good taste for us to engage in such frivolities, considering what we had gone through and the frame of mind we were in. 
we would have shown at a wake, but not at anything more festive. However, there is always a cheering influence about the sea, and in my berth that night, rocked by the unmeasured swell of the waves and lulled by the murmur of the distant surf, I soon passed tranquilly out of all consciousness of the dreary experiences of the day and damaging premonitions of the future. Tracy Wooster from the University of Texas at Austin. Today I'm going to be reading from Life on the Mississippi, Chapter 9, Continued Perplexities. Just a short piece to start off and then a longer piece. Now I had often seen pilots gazing at the water and pretending to read it as if it were a book. But it was a book that told me nothing. A time came at last, however, when Mr. Bixby seemed to think me far enough advanced to bear a lesson on water reading. Skipping ahead. It turned out to be true. The face of the water in time became a wonderful book, a book that was a dead language to the uneducated passenger, but which told its mind to me without reserve, delivering its most cherished secrets as clearly as if it uttered them with a voice. And it was not a book to be read once and thrown aside, for it had a new story to tell every day. Throughout the long 1,200 miles, there was never a page that was void of interest, never one that you could leave unread without loss. Never one that you would want to skip, thinking you could find higher enjoyment in some other thing. There never was so wonderful a book written by man. Never one whose interest was so absorbing, so unflagging, so sparklingly renewed with every reperusal. The passenger who could not read it was charmed with a peculiar sort of faint dimple on its surface, on the rare occasions when he did not overlook it altogether. But to the pilot, that was an italicized passage. Indeed, it was more than that. It was a legend of the largest capitals with a string of shouting exclamation points at the end of it, for it meant that a wreck or a rock was buried there that could tear the life out of the strongest vessel that ever floated. It is the faintest and simplest expression the water ever makes and the most hideous to a pilot's eye. In truth, the passenger who could not read this book saw nothing but all manner of pretty pictures in it painted by the sun and shaded by the clouds, Whereas to the trained eye, these were not pictures at all, but the grimmest and most dead earnest of reading matter. Now, when I had mastered the language of this water and had come to know every trifling feature that bordered the great river as, familiar, as familiarly as I knew the letters of the alphabet, I had made a valuable acquisition, but I had lost something too. I had lost something which could never be restored to me while I lived. All the grace, the beauty, the poetry had gone out of the majestic river. I still keep in mind a certain wonderful sunset which I witnessed when steamboating was new to me. A broad expanse of the river was turned to blood. In the middle distance, the red hue brightened into gold, through which a solitary log came floating, black and conspicuous. In one place, a long, slanting mark lay sparkling upon the water. In another, the surface was broken by boiling, tumbling rings, that were as many tinted as an opal. Where the ruddy flash was faintest was a smooth spot that was covered with graceful circles and radiating lines ever so delicately traced. The shore on our left was densely wooded and the somber shadow that fell from this forest was broken in one place by a long ruffled trail that shone like silver. 
and high above the forest wall, a clean-stemmed dead tree waved a single leafy bow, bough that gleamed like a flame in the unobstructed splendor that was flowing from the sun. There were graceful curves, reflected images, woody heights, soft distances, and over the whole scene far and near, the dissolving lights drifted steadily, enriching it every passing moment with new marvels of coloring. I stood like one bewitched. I drank it in, in speechless rapture. The world was new to me and I had never seen anything like this at home. But as I have said, a day came when I began to cease from noting the glories and the charms which the moon and the sun and the twilight wrought upon the river's face. Another day came when I ceased altogether to note them. Then, if that sunset scene had been repeated, I should have looked upon it without rapture and should have commented upon it inwardly after this fashion. This sun means that we are going to have wind tomorrow. That floating log means the river is rising, small thanks to it. That slanting mark on the water refers to a bluff reef, which is going to kill somebody's steamboat one of these nights, if it keeps on stretching out like that. Those tumbling boils show a dissolving bar and a changing channel there. The lines and circles in the slick water over yonder are warning that a troublesome place is shoaling up dangerously. That silver streak in the shadow of the forest is the break from a new snag, and he has located himself in the very best place he could have found to fish for steamboats. That tall dead tree with a single living branch is not going to last long, and then how is a body ever going to get through this blind place at night without the friendly old landmark? No, the romance and the beauty were all gone from the river. All the value any feature of it had for me now was the amount of usefulness it could furnish toward compass compassing the safe piloting of a steamboat. Since those days, I have pitied doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean to a doctor but a break that ripples above some deadly disease? Are not all her visible charms sown thick with what are to him the signs and symbols of hidden decay? Does he ever see her beauty at all? Or doesn't the, he simply view her professionally and comment upon her unwholesome condition all to himself? And doesn't he sometimes wonder whether he has gained most or lost most by learning his trade? My name is Joe Cecilla. I teach at Eastern Michigan University just outside of Detroit. I'm going to be reading from Willa Cather's O Pioneers, chapter one, part two, called Neighboring Fields. The divide is now thickly populated. The rich soil yields heavy harvests. The dry, bracing climate and the smoothness of the land make labor easy for men and beasts. There are few scenes more gratifying than a spring plowing that country where the furrows of a single field often lie a mile in length. And the brown earth, which such a strong, clean smell and such a power of growth and fertility in it, yields itself eagerly to the plow, rolls away from the shear, not even dimming the brightness of the metal, with a soft, deep sigh of happiness. The wheat cutting sometimes goes on all night as well as all day, and in good seasons, there are scarcely men and horses enough to do the harvesting. The grain is so heavy that it bends toward the blade and cuts like velvet. There's something frank and joyous and young in the open face of the country. 
It gives itself ungrudgingly to the moods of the season, holding nothing back. Like the plains of Lombardy, it seems to rise a little to meet the sun. The air and the earth are curiously mated and intermingled, as if one were the breath of the other. You feel in the atmosphere the same tonic, prescient quality that is in the tilth, the same strength and resoluteness. One June morning, a young man stood at the gate of the Norwegian graveyard, sharpening his scythe and strokes unconsciously timed to the tune he was whistling. He wore a flannel cap and duck trousers, and the sleeve of his white flannel shirt were rolled back to the elbow. When he was satisfied with the edge of his blade, he slipped the whetstone into his hip pocket and began to swing his scythe, still whistling, but softly out of respect to the quiet folk about him. Unconscious respect, probably, for he seemed intent upon his own thoughts. And like the gladiators, they were far away. He was a splendid figure of a boy, tall and straight as a young pine tree, with a handsome head and stormy gray eyes, deeply set under a serious brow. The space between his two front teeth were unusually far apart, gave him the proficiency in whistling for which he was distinguished at college. He also played the cornet in the university band. When the grass required his close attention, or when he had to stoop to cut about the headstone, he paused in his lively air, the jewel song, taking it up where he had left it when his scythe swung free again. He was not thinking about the tired pioneers over whom his blade glittered. The old wild country, the struggle in which his sister was destined to succeed while so many men broke their hearts and died, he can scarcely remember. That is all among the dim things of childhood and has been forgotten in the brighter pattern life weaves today. In the bright facts of being captain of the track team, and holding the interstate record for the high jump, in all the suffusing brightness of being 21. Yet sometimes, in the pauses of his work, the young man frowned and looked at the ground with an intentness which suggested that even 21 might have its problems. When he had been mowing the better part of an hour, he heard the rattle of a light cart on the road behind him. Supposing that it was his sister coming back from one of her farms, he kept on with his work. The cart stopped at the gate, and a merry contralto voice called, Almost through, Emil? He dropped his scythe and went toward the fence, wiping his face and neck with his handkerchief. In the cart sat a young woman, who wore driving gauntlets and a wide shade hat, trimmed with red poppies. Her face, too, was rather like a poppy, round and brown, with rich color in her cheeks and lips, and her dancing yellow-brown eyes bubbled with gaiety. What time did you get over here? That's not much of a job for an athlete. Here I've been to town and back. Alexandra lets you sleep late. Oh, I know. Lou's wife was telling me about the way that she spoils you. I was going to give you a lift if you were done. She gathered up her reins. But I will be in a minute. Please wait for me, Marie, Emil coaxed. Alexandra sent me to mow our lot, but I've done half a dozen others, you see. 
Just wait till I finish off the coordinates. By the way, they were Bohemians. Why aren't they up in the Catholic graveyard? Free thinkers, replied the young woman laconically. Lots of the Bohemian boys at the university are, said Emil, taking up his scythe again. What did you ever burn John Huss for, anyway? It's made an awful row. They still jaw about it in history classes. We do it right over again, most of us, said the young woman hotly. Don't they ever teach you in your history classes that you'd all be heathen Turks if it hadn't been for the Bohemians? Emil had fallen to mowing. Oh, there's no denying you're a spunky little bunch, you checks, he called back over his shoulder. Marie Shabata settled herself in her seat and watched the rhythmical movement of the young man's long arms, swinging her foot as if in time to some air that was going through her mind. The minutes passed. Emile mowed vigorously, and Marie sat sunning herself and watching the long grass fall. She sat with the ease that belongs to persons of an essentially happy nature, who can find a comfortable spot almost anywhere, who are supple and quick in adapting themselves to circumstances. After a final swish, Emile snapped the gate and sprang into the cart, holding his scythe well out over the wheel. There, he sighed. I gave old man Lee a cut or so, too. Lou's wife needn't talk. I never see Lou's scythe over here. Marie clucked to her horse. Oh, you know, Annie. She looked at the young man's bare arms. How brown you've got since you came home. I wish I had an athlete to mow my orchard. I get wet to my knees when I go down to pick cherries. You can have one. Anytime you want them. Better wait until after it rains. Emile squinted off at the horizon as if he were looking for clouds. Will you? Oh, there's a good boy. She turned her head to him with a quick, bright smile. He felt it rather than saw it. Indeed, he had looked away with the purpose of not seeing it. I've been up looking at Angelique's wedding clothes, Marie went on, and I'm so excited I can hardly wait for Sunday. Amade will be a handsome bridegroom. Is anyone but you going to stand up with him? Well, then it will be a handsome wedding party. She made a droll face at Emile, who flushed. Frank, Marie continued, flicking her horse, is cranky at me because I loaned his saddle to Jan Smirka, and I'm terribly afraid he won't take me to the dance in the evening. Maybe the supper will tempt him. All Angelique's folks are baking for it, and all Amade's twenty cousins. There will be barrels of beer. If once I get Frank to the supper, I'll see that I stay for the dance. And by the way, Emile, you mustn't dance with me but once or twice. You must dance with all the French girls. It hurts their feelings if you don't. They think you're proud because you've been away to school or something. Emile sniffed. How do you know they think that? Well, you didn't dance with them much at Raoul Marcel's party. And I could tell how they took it by the way they looked at you and at me. All right, said Emile shortly, studying the glittering blade of his scythe. They drove westward toward Norway Creek and toward a big white house that stood on a hill several miles across the fields. There were so many sheds and outbuildings grouped about it that the place looked not unlike a tiny village. 
a stranger approaching it could not help noticing the beauty and fruitfulness of the outlying fields. There was something individual about the great farm, a most unusual trimness and care for detail. On the other side of the road, for a mile before he reached the foot of the hill, stood tall Osage orange hedges, their glossy green marking off the yellow fields. South of the hill, in a low sheltered swale, surrounded by a mulberry hedge, was the orchard, its fruit trees knee-deep in timothy grass. Anyone thereabouts would have told you that this was one of the richest farms on the divide, and that the farmer was a woman, Alexandra Bergson. If you go up the hill and enter Alexandra's big house, you will find that it is curiously unfinished and uneven in comfort. One room is papered, carpeted, over-furnished. The next is almost bare. The pleasantest room in the house are the kitchen, where Alexandra's three young Swedish girls chatter and cook and pickle and preserve all summer long, and the sitting room, in which Alexandra has brought together the old homely furniture that the Bergsons used in their first log house, the family portraits, and the few things her mother brought from Sweden. When you go out of the house into the flower garden, there you feel again the order and fine arrangement manifest all over the great farm, in the fencing and hedging, in the windbreaks and sheds, in the symmetrical pasture ponds, planted with scrub willows to give shade to the cattle in fly time. There is even a white row of beehives in the orchard under the walnut trees. You feel that properly, Alexandra's house is the big out of doors, and that it is in the soil that she expresses herself best. Then they sat together with a slate before them, and Tom gave Becky the pencil and held her hand in his, guiding it, and so created another surprising house. When the interest in art began to wane, the two fell to talking. Tom was swimming in bliss. He said, do you love rats? No, I hate them. Well, I do too live ones, but I mean dead ones, to swing around your head with the string. No, I don't care for rats much anyway. What I like is chewing gum. Oh, I should say so. I wish I had some now. Do you? I've got some. I'll let you chew it a while, but you must give it back to me. Well, that was agreeable. So they chewed it turn about and dangled their legs against the bench in excess of contentment. Well, you have rather a circus, said Tom. Yes, and my pa's going to take me again sometime if I'm good. I've been to the circus three or four times. Lots of times. Church ain't shucks to a circus. There's things going on at a circus all the time. I'm going to be a clown in, in a circus when I grow up. Oh, are you? That would be nice. They're so lovely, all spotted up. Yes, that's so. And they get slathers of money, most, most a dollar a day, Ben Rogers says. Say, Becky, was you ever engaged? What's that? Why engaged to be married? No. Would you like to? 
I reckon so. I don't know. What is it like? Like? Well, it ain't like anything. You only just tell a boy you won't have anybody but him ever, ever, ever. And then you kiss, and that's all. Anybody can do it. Kiss? What do you kiss for? Well, that, you know, is to where they always do that. Everybody? Well, yes, everybody that's in love with each other. Do you remember what I wrote on the slate? Yes. What was it? I shan't tell you. Shall I tell you? Yes, but some other time. No, now. No, not now. Tomorrow. Oh, no, now. Please, Becky, I'll whisper it. I'll whisper it ever so easy. Becky hesitating. Tom took silence for consent and passed his arm around her waist and whispered the tale ever so softly with his mouth close to her ear. And then he added, Now you whisper it to me, just the same. She resisted for a while and then said, You turn your face away so you can't see, and then I will. But you mustn't ever tell anybody. Will you, Tom? Now you won't, will you? No, indeed. Indeed I won't. Now, Becky. He turned his face away. She bent timidly around till her breath stirred his curls, and whispered, I love you. How I Edited an Agricultural Paper by Mark Twain I did not take temporary editorship of an agricultural paper without misgivings. Neither would a landsman take command of a ship without misgivings. But I was in circumstances that made the salary an object. The regular editor of the paper was going off for a holiday, and I accepted the terms he offered and took his place. The sensation of being back at work again was luxurious and I wrought all the week with unflagging pleasure. We went to press, and I waited a day with some solicitude to see whether my effort was going to attract any notice. As I left the office toward sundown, a group of men and boys at the foot of the stairs dispersed with one impulse and gave me passageway, and I heard one or two of them say, That's him! I was naturally pleased by this incident. The next morning I found a similar group at the foot of the stairs, and scattering couples, and individuals standing here and there in the street and over the way watching me with interest. The group separated and fell back as I approached, and I heard a man say, Look at his eye! I pretended not to observe the notice I was attracting, but... Secretly, I was pleased with it, and was proposing to write an account of it to my aunt. I went up the short flight of stairs, and heard cheery voices and ringing laugh as I drew near the door, which I opened, and caught a glimpse of two young, rural-looking men, whose faces blanched and lengthened when they saw me, and they both plunged through the window with a great crash. I was surprised. 
In about half an hour, an old gentleman with a flowing beard and a fine but rather austere face entered and sat down at my invitation. He seemed to have something on his mind. He took off his hat and set it on the floor and got out of it a red silk handkerchief and a copy of our paper. He put the paper on his lap, and while he polished his spectacles with his handkerchief, he said, Are you the new editor? I said I was. Have you ever edited an agricultural paper before? No, I said, this is my first attempt. Very likely. Have you had any experience in agriculture, practically? No, I believe I have not. Some instinct told me so, said the old gentleman, putting on his spectacles and looking over them at me with asperity, while he folded his paper into a convenient shape. I wish to read you what must have made me have that instinct. It was this editorial. Now listen and see if it was you that wrote it. Turnips should never be pulled. It injures them. It is much better to send a boy up and let him shake the tree. Now, what do you think of that? For I really suppose you wrote it. Think of it? Why, I think it is good. I think it is sense. I have no doubt that every year millions and millions of bushels of turnips are spoiled in this township alone by being pulled in a half-ripe condition. When, if they had sent a boy up to shake the tree, shake your grandmother! Turnips don't grow on trees. Oh? They don't, do they? Well, who said they did? The language was intended to be figurative, wholly figurative. Anybody that knows anything will know that I meant that the boy should shake the vine. Then this old person got up and tore his paper all into small shreds and stamped on them and broke several things with his cane and said, I did not know as much as a cow, and then went out and banged the door after him and, in short, acted in such a way that I fancied he was displeased about something. But not knowing what the trouble was, I could not be any help to him. Pretty soon after this, a long, cadaverous creature with lanky locks hanging down to his shoulders and a week's stubble bristling from the hills and valleys of his face darted within the door and halted, motionless, with a finger on lip and head and body bent in listening attitude. No sound was heard. Still he listened. No sound. Then he turned the key in the door and came elaborately tiptoeing toward me till he was within long-reaching distance of me when he stopped and, after scanning my face with intense interest for a while, drew a folded copy of our paper from his bosom and said, There, you wrote that. Read it to me, quick. Relieve me. I suffer. I read as follows, and as the sentences fell from my lips, I could see the relief come. 
I could see the drawn muscles relax and the anxiety go out of his face and rest in peace steal over the features like the merciful moonlight over a desolate landscape. The guano is a fine bird, but care, great care, is necessary in rearing it. It should not be imported earlier than June or later than September. In the winter, it should be kept in a warm place where it can hatch out its young. It is evident that we are to have a backward season for grain. Therefore, it will be well for the farmer to begin setting out his corn stalks and planting his buckwheat cakes in July instead of August. Concerning the pumpkin, this berry is a favorite with the native of the interior of New England, who prefer it to the gooseberry for the making of fruitcake, and who likewise give it the preference over the raspberry for feeding cows, as being more filling and fully as satisfying. The pumpkin is the only esculent of the orange family that will thrive in the north, except the gourd and one or two varieties of the squash. But the custom of planting it in the front yard with the shrubbery is fast going out of vogue, for it is now generally conceded that the pumpkin, as a shade tree, is a failure. Now, as the warm weather approaches and the ganders begin to spawn, the excited listener sprang toward me to shake hands and said, There, there, that will do. I know I am all right now because you have read it just as I did, word for word. But stranger, when I first read it this morning, I said to myself, I never, never believed it before. Notwithstanding, my friends kept me under watch, so strict. But now I believe I am crazy. And with that, I fetched a howl that you might have heard two miles and started out to kill somebody. Because, you know, I knew it would come to that sooner or later, and so I might as well begin. I read one of them paragraphs over again, so as to be certain. And then I burned my house down and started. I have crippled several people and have got one fellow up a tree where I can get him if I want him. But... I thought I would call in here as I passed along and make the thing perfectly certain. And now it is certain. I tell you, it is lucky for that chap that is up in the tree. I should have killed him, sure, as I went back. Goodbye, goodbye, sir. You have taken a great load off my mind. My reason has stood the strain of one of your agricultural articles, and I know that nothing can ever unseat it now. Goodbye, sir. I felt a little uncomfortable about the cripplings and arsons this person had been entertaining himself with, for I could not help feeling remotely accessory to them. But these thoughts were quickly banished, for the regular editor walked in. I thought to myself, now if you had gone to Egypt, as I recommended you to, I might have had a chance to get my hand in, but you wouldn't do it. And here you are. I sort of expected you. The editor was looking sad and perplexed and dejected. He surveyed the wreck which that old rioter and those two young farmers had made and then said, This is a sad business. A very sad business. There is the mucilage bottle broken. 
and six planes of glass, and a spittoon, and two candlesticks. But that is not the worst. The reputation of the paper is injured, and permanently, I fear. True, there never was such a call for the paper before, and it never sold such a large edition or soared to such celebrity. But does one want to be famous for lunacy and prosper upon the infirmities of his mind? My friend, as I am an honest man, the street out here is full of people, and others are roosting on the fences wanting to get a glimpse of you, because they think... You are crazy. And well, they might, after reading your editorials. They are a disgrace to journalism. Why, what put it into your head that you could edit a paper of this nature? You do not seem to know the first rudiments of agriculture. You speak of a, of a furrow and a harrow as being the same thing. You talk of the molting season for cows. And you recommend the domestication of the polecat on account of its playfulness and its excellent as a ratter. Your remark that clams will be quiet if music be played to them was superfluous, entirely superfluous. Nothing disturbs clams. Clams always lie quiet. Clams care nothing whatever about music. Oh, heavens and earth, friend, if you had made the acquiring of ignorance the study of your life, you could not have graduated with higher honor than you could today. I never saw anything like it. Your observation that the horse chestnut, as an article of commerce, is steadily gaining in favor is simply calculated to destroy this journal. I want you to throw up your situation and go. I want no more holiday. I could not enjoy it if I had it. Certainly not with you in my chair. I would always stand in dread of what you might be going to recommend next. It makes me lose all patience every time I think of your discussing oyster beds under the heading of landscape gardening. I want you to go. Nothing on earth could persuade me to take another holiday. Oh, why? Why didn't you tell me you didn't know anything about agriculture? Tell you? You cornstalk, you cabbage, you son of a cauliflower. It's the first time I've ever heard such an unfeeling remark. I tell you, I have been in the editorial business going on 14 years, and it is the first time I ever heard of a man's having to know anything in order to edit a newspaper. You turnip. Who writes the dramatic critiques for the second-rate newspapers while a parcel of promoted shoemakers and apprenticed apothecaries who know as much about good acting as I do about good farming and no more? Who reviews the books? People who never wrote one. Who do up the heavy leaders on finance? Parties who have had the largest opportunities for knowing nothing about it. Who criticizes the Indian campaigns? Gentlemen who do not know a war whoop from a wigwam and who have had to run a, never had to run a foot race with a tomahawk or pluck arrows out of the several members of their families to build the evening campfire with. 
who writes the temperance appeals and clamor about the flowing bowl, folks who will never draw another sober breath till they do it in the grave. Who edits the agricultural papers, you yam? Men as a general thing who fail in the poetry line, yellow-colored novel line, sensation, drama line, shitty editor line, and finally fall back on agriculture as a temporary reprieve from the poorhouse. You try to tell me anything about the newspaper business. Sir, I have been through it from Alpha to Omaha, and I tell you that the less a man knows, the bigger the noise he makes, and the higher the salary he commands. Heaven knows if I had but been ignorant instead of cultivated, and impudent instead of diffident, I could have made a name for myself in this cold, selfish world. I take my leave, sir, since I have been treated as you have treated me. I am perfectly willing to go, but I have done my duty. I have fulfilled my contract as far as I was permitted to do it. I said I could make your paper of interest to all classes, and I have. I said I could run your circulation up to 20,000 copies, and if I had two more weeks, I'd have done it. And I'd have given you the best class of readers that ever an agricultural paper had. Not a farmer in it. Not a solitary individual who could tell a watermelon tree from a peach vine to save his life. You are the loser by this rupture, not me, pie plant. Adios. I then left. Hi, Hal. It's Carrie Driscoll. I'm going to read you a short selection from Eve's diary. Saturday. I am almost a whole day old now. I arrived yesterday. That is, as it seems to me. And it must be so. For if there was a day before yesterday, I was not there when it happened. Or I should remember it. It could be, of course, that it did happen. And that I was not noticing. Very well. I will be very watchful now. And if any day before yesterday's happen, I will make a note of it. It will be best to start right and not let the record get confused, for some instinct tells me that these details are going to be important to the historian someday. For I feel like an experiment. I feel exactly like an experiment. It would be impossible for a person to feel more like an experiment than I do. And so I am coming to feel convinced that that is just what I am, an experiment, just an experiment and nothing more. Then if I am an experiment, am I the whole of it? No, I think not. I think the rest of it is part of it. I am the main part of it, but I think the rest of it has its share in the matter. Is my position assured, or do I have to watch it and take care of it? The latter, perhaps. Some instinct tells me that eternal vigilance is the price of supremacy. That is a good phrase, I think, for someone so young. Everything looks better today than it did yesterday. In the rush of finishing up yesterday, the mountains were left in a ragged condition, and some of the plains were so cluttered with rubbish and remnants that the aspects were quite distressing. Noble and beautiful works of art should not be subjected to haste, and this majestic new world is indeed a most noble and beautiful work, and certainly marvelously near to being perfect, notwithstanding the shortness of the time. There are too many stars in some places and not enough in others, but that can be remedied presently, no doubt. The moon got loose last night, 
and slid down and fell out of the scheme. A very great loss. It breaks my heart to think of it. There isn't another thing among the ornaments and decorations that is comparable to it for beauty and finish. It should have been fastened better, if we can only get it back again. But of course, there is no telling where it went to. And besides, whoever gets it will hide it. I know, because I would do it myself. I believe I can be honest in all other matters, but I already begin to realize that the core and center of my nature is love of the beautiful, a passion for the beautiful, and that it would not be safe to trust me with a moon that belonged to another person, and that, and if that person didn't know, I had it. I could give up a moon that I found in the daytime because I should be afraid someone was looking, but if I found it in the dark, I am sure I should find some kind of excuse for not saying anything about it. For I do love moons. They are so pretty and so romantic. I wish we had five or six. I would never go to bed. I should never get tired lying on the moss bank and looking up at them. Stars are good too. I wish I could get some to put in my hair, but I suppose I never can. You would be surprised to find how far off they are, for they do not look it. When they first showed last night, I tried to knock some down with a pole, but it didn't reach, which astonished me. Then I tried clods till I was all tired out, but I never got one. Today I am getting better ideas about distances. I was so eager to grab hold of every pretty thing that I giddily grabbed for it, sometimes when it was too far off, and sometimes when it was but six inches away, when it seemed a foot, alas, with thorns between. I learned a lesson. Also, I made a ma an axiom, all out of my own head, my very first one. The scratched experiment shuns the thorn. I think it is a very good one for one so young. I followed the other experiment around yesterday afternoon at a distance to see what it might be for if I could, but I was not able to make out. I think it is a man. I had never seen a man, but it looked like one, and I feel sure that is what it is. I realize that I feel more curiosity about it than about any of the other reptiles. If it is a reptile, and I suppose it is, for it has frowsy hair and blue eyes and looks like a reptile. It has no hips. It tapers like a carrot. When it stands, it spreads itself apart like a derrick. And so I think it is a reptile, though it may be architecture. I was afraid of it at first and started to run every time it turned around, for I thought it was going to chase me. But by and by, I found it was only trying to get away. So after that, I was not timid anymore, but tracked it along several hours, about 20 yards behind, which made it nervous and unhappy. At last, it was a good deal worried and climbed a tree. I waited a good while, then gave it up and went home. Today, the same thing over. I've got it up the tree again. Get better soon, Hal. Hello, Hal. Tracy Wooster here. I'm going to be reading to you today the Whittier Birthday Speech, 1977, the Atlantic Monthly Birthday Dinner for the 70th birthday of John Greenleaf Whittier. Mr. Chairman, this is an occasion peculiarly meet for the digging up of pleasant reminiscences, reminiscences concerning literary folk. 
Therefore, I will drop lightly into history myself. Standing here on the shore of the Atlantic and contemplating certain of its biggest literary billows, I am reminded of a thing which happened to me some 15 years ago, when I had just succeeded in stirring up a little Nevadian literary ocean puddle myself, whose spoon flakes were beginning to blow California words. I started an inspection tramp through the southern mines of California. I was callow and conceited, and I resolved to try the virtue of my nom de plume. I very soon had an opportunity. I knocked at a miner's lonely log cabin in the foothills of the Sierras just at nightfall. It was snowing at the time. A jaded, melancholy man of fifty barefooted opened to me. When he heard my nom de plume, he looked more de dejected than before. He let me in, pretty reluctantly, I thought. And after the customary bacon and beans, black coffee and hot whiskey, I took a pipe. This sorrowful man had not said three words up to this time. Now he spoke up and said in a voice of one who was secretly suffering, Nor the fourth. I'm a-gonna move. The fourth what? said I. The fourth literary man that's been here in 24 hours. I'm a-gonna move. You don't tell me, said I. Who were the others? Mr. Longfellow, Mr. Emerson, and Mr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Dad fetched the lot. You can easily believe I was interested. I supplicated three hot whiskeys, did the rest. And finally, the melancholy miners began, said he. They came here just at dark yesterday evening, and I let them in, of course. Said they were going to Yosemite. They were a rough lot, and that's nothing. Everybody looks rough that travels afoot. Mr. Emerson was a seedy little bit of a chap, red-headed. Mr. Holmes was fat as a balloon. He weighed as much as 300 and had double chins all the way down to his stomach. Mr. Longfellow was built like a prize fighter. His head was cropped and bristly, like as if he had made a wig of hairbrushes. His nose lay straight down his face like a finger, with the end joint tilted up. They had been drinking, I could see that, and what queer talk they used. Mr. Holmes inspected the cabin, then he took me by the buttonhole and says he, Though through the deep caves of thought I hear a voice that sings, Build thee more stately mansions, O my soul, says I. I can't afford it, Mr. Holmes, and moreover, I don't want to. Blamed if I, like, blamed if I liked it pretty well either, coming from a stranger that way. However, I started to get my bacon and beans when Mr. Emerson come in, came and looked on a while, and then he takes me aside by the buttonhole and says, Give me agates for my meat. Give me cartharides to eat. From air and ocean bring me foods from all zones and latitudes. Says I, Mr. Emerson, if you'll excuse me, this ain't no hotel. You see, it sort of riled me. I weren't used to the ways of literary swells, but I went on a-sweatin' over my work, and next comes Mr. Longfellow, and buttonholes me, and interrupts me, says he. Honor be to Mujo Kowiz, you shall hear how pow puck Kowiz. But I broke in, and I says, begging your pardon, Mr. Longfellow, if you'll be so kind as to hold your yap for about five minutes and let me get this grub ready, you'll do me proud. Well, sir, after they'd filled up and set out the jug, Mr. Holmes looks at it, and then he fires up all of a sudden and yells, Flash out a stream of blood-red wine, for I would drink to other days. 
By George, I was getting kind of worked up. I don't deny it. I was getting kind of worked up. I turns to Mr. Holmes and says I, Looky here, my fat friend. I'm a running this shanty, and if the court knows herself, you'll take whiskey straight or you'll go dry. Them's the very words I said to him. Now, I didn't want to sass such famous literary people, and you see, they kind of forced me. There ain't nothing unreasonable about me. I don't mind a passel of guests a treading on my tail three or four times, but when it comes to standing on it, it's different. And if the court knows herself, you'll take whiskey straight or you'll go dry. Well, between drinks, they'd swell around the cabin and strike attitudes and spout, says Mr. Longfellow. This is the forest primeval, says Mr. Emerson. Here once the embatted farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. Says I, oh, blackguard the premises as much as you want to. It don't cost you a cent. Well, they went on drinking, and pretty soon they got out a greasy old deck and went to playing cutthroat euchre at ten cents a corner. On trust. I began then to notice some pretty suspicious things. Mr. Emerson dealt, looked at his hand, shook his head, and says, I am the doubter, and the doubt. And calmly bunched the hands and went to shuffling for a new layout, says he, they reckon ill who leave me out. They know not well the subtle ways. I keep, I pass, and deal again. Hanged if he didn't go ahead and do it, too. Oh, he was a cool one. Well, in a minute, things were running pretty tight. But all of a sudden, I see by Mr. Emerson's eye that he judged he had him. He had already corralled two tricks, and each of the others won. So now he kind of lifts a little in his chair and says, I tire of globes and aces. Too long the game is played. And down he fetched a right bower. Mr. Longfellow smiles as sweet as pie and says, Thanks, thanks to thee, my worthy friend, for the lesson thou hast taught. And dog my cats if he didn't come down with another right bower. Well, sir, up jumps Holmes a war whooping as usual and says, God help them if the tempest swings the pine against the palm. And I wish I may go to grass if he didn't swoop down with another right bower. Emerson claps his hand on his bowie, buoy. Longfellow claps his on his revolver, and I went under a bunk. There was going to be trouble, but that monstrous Holmes rose up, wobbling his double chins, and says he, Order, gentlemen, the first man that draws, I'll lay down on him and smother him. All quiet on the Potomac, you bet you. They were pretty, how come you so now, and they begun to blow. Emerson says, the bulliest thing I ever wrote was Barbara Fretchy, says Longfellow. It don't go, it don't begin with my big low papers says Holmes. My, my thanoposis lays over them both. They mighty near ended in a fight. Then they wished they had some more company, and Mr. Emerson pointed at me and says, Is yonder squalid pen peasant all that this proud nursery could breed? He was a wet in his buoy on his boot, so I let it pass. Well, sir, next they took it in their heads that they would like some music, so they made me stand up and sing when Johnny comes marching home till I dropped. At 13 minutes past four this morning. That's what I've been through, my friend. When I woke at seven, they were leaving, thank goodness, and Mr. Longfellow had on my only boot had my only boots on, and under his own arm and his own under his arm. Says I, Hold on there, Evangeline. What are you gonna do with them? He says, Going to make tracks with them because lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime, and departing leave behind us footprints in the sands of time. As I said, Mr. Twain, 
You are the fourth in 24 hours, and I'm going to move. I ain't suited to the literary atmosphere. I said to the miner, Why, my dear sir, these were not the gracious singers to whom we in the world pay loving reverence and homage. Those were impostors. The miner investigated me with a calm eye for a while, and he says, Ah, impostors were they. Are you? I did not pursue the subject, and since then I have traveled on my nom de plume enough to hurt. And since then I haven't traveled on my nom de plume enough to hurt. Such is the reminiscence I was moved to contribute, Mr. Chairman. In my enthusiasm, I may have exaggerated the details a little, but you will easily forgive me that fault, since I believe it is the first time I have ever deflected for perpendicular fact on an occasion like this. An Encounter with an Interviewer by Mark Twain The nervous, dapper, pert young man took the chair I offered him and said he was connected with the daily thunderstorm and added, Hoping it's no harm, I've come to interview you. Come to what? Interview you. Ah, I see. Yes, yes, um... Yes, yes. <laughs> I was not feeling bright that morning. Indeed, my powers seemed a bit under a cloud. However, I went to the bookcase, and when I had been looking for six or seven minutes, I found I was obliged to refer to the young man. I said, um, How do you spell it? Spell what? Interview. Oh, my goodness, what, what do you want to spell it for? I don't want to spell it. I, I want to see what it means. Well, th this is astonishing, I must say. I, I can tell you what it means if you... If you... Oh, all right, that will answer. And I'm much obliged to you, too. Interview. I and... Then you spell it with an I? Why, certainly. Well, that's what's always taken me so long. Why, my dear sir, what did you propose to spell it with? Well, I, I hardly knew. I, I had the unabridged, and I was ciphering around in the back end, hoping I might tree her among the pictures. But it's a very old edition. Why, my friend, they wouldn't have a picture of it, even in the latest... My dear sir, <laughs> I, I beg your pardon. I mean no harm in the world, but you do not look as... As intelligent as I had expected you would. Uh, no harm. I, I mean no harm at all. Oh, don't mention it. It has often been said, and by people who would not flatter, and who could have no inducement to flatter, that I am quite remarkable in that way. Yes, yes, they always speak of it with rapture. <laughs> I can easily imagine. But about this interview... You know it is the custom now to interview any man who has become notorious. Indeed, I had not heard of it before. It must be very interesting. What do you do with it? Ah, well, 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 this is disheartening. It ought to be done 
with a club in some cases, but customarily it consists in the interviewer asking questions and the interviewed answering them. It is all the rage now. Will you let me ask you certain questions calculated to bring out the salient points of your public and private history? Oh, with pleasure. Uh, I have a very bad memory, but I hope you will not mind that. That is to say, it is an irregular memory. Singularly irregular. Sometimes it goes in a gallop. And then again, it will be as much as a fortnight passing a given point. This is a great grief to me. Oh, it is no matter. So you will try to do the best you can. I will. I, I will. I, I'll put my whole mind on it. Thanks. Are you ready to begin? Ready. How old are you? Nineteen. In June. Indeed. I would have taken you to be thirty-five or six. Uh, where were you born? In Missouri. When did you first begin to write? In, um, 1836. Why, how could that be if you're only 19 now? I don't know. It does seem curious somehow. It does indeed. Who do you consider the most remarkable man you ever met? Aaron Burr. But you could have never met Aaron Burr. If you're only 19 years, now if you know more about me than I do, what do you ask me for? Well, it was only a suggestion, nothing more. How did you happen to meet Burr? Well, I happened to be at his funeral one day, and he asked me to make less noise. And, but good heavens, if you're at his funeral, he must have been dead. And if he was dead, how could he care whether you made a noise or not? I don't know. He was always a particular kind of man that way. Still, I don't understand it at all. You say he spoke to you and that he was dead. I didn't say he was dead. But wasn't he dead? Well, some said he was, yes. Some said he wasn't. What do you think? I was none of my business. It wasn't any of my funeral. Did you... However, we can never get this matter straight. Let me talk about something else. What was the date of your birth? Monday, October 31st, 1693. What? Impossible. That would make you 180 years old. How do you account for that? I don't account for it at all. But you said at first you were only 19, and... Now you make yourself out to be 180? It is an awful discrepancy. Why, have you noticed that, too? Many a time it has seemed to me like a discrepancy. But somehow I couldn't make up my mind. How quick you notice a thing. Thank you for the compliment, as far as it goes. Had you or have you any brothers or sisters? Uh, I, I, I think so, yes, but uh, I don't remember. 
Well, that is the most extraordinary statement I have ever heard. Why, what makes you think that? How could I think otherwise? Why, well, look here. Who is this a picture of on the wall? Isn't that a brother of yours? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now you remind me of it. That was a brother of mine. That's William. Bill, we called him. Poor old Bill. Why, is he dead then? Ah, uh, well, I suppose so. We never could tell. There was a great mystery about it. That is sad, very sad. He disappeared then, did he? Well, yes, in a, in a sort of a general way. We buried him. Buried him? Buried him without knowing whether he was dead or not? Oh, no, not that. He was dead enough. Well, I confess that I cannot understand this. If you buried him and you knew he was dead... No, 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 we only thought he was. Oh, I come to see. He came to life again. I bet he didn't. Well, I never heard anything like this. Somebody was dead. Somebody was buried. Now... Where was the mystery? Ah, that's just it. That's it exactly. You see, we were twins, defunct and I, and we got mixed up in the bathtub when we were only two weeks old, and one of us was drowned, but we don't know which. Some think it was Bill. Some think it was me. Well, that is remarkable, what do you think? Goodness knows I would give the whole worlds to know. This solemn, this awful mystery has cast a gloom over my whole life. But I will tell you a secret now, which I have never revealed to any creature before. One of us had a peculiar mark. It was a large mole on the back of the left hand. That was me. That child was the one that was drowned. Very well, then. I, I, I don't see there is any mystery about it after all. You don't? Well, I do. Anyway, I don't see how they could have ever been such a blundering lot as to go and bury the wrong child. But, but shh, don't mention it where the family can hear of it. Heaven knows they've had heartbreaking troubles enough without adding this. Well, I, I believe I've got material enough for the present, and uh, I'm very much obliged to you for the pains you have taken. Uh, but I uh, was a good deal interested in that account of Aaron Burr's funeral. Would you mind telling me what particular circumstance it was that made you think Burr was such a remarkable man? Oh, it was a mere trifle. Not one man in fifty would have noticed it at all. When the sermon was over, and the procession all ready to start for the cemetery, and the body all arranged in the hearse, he said he wanted to take a last look at the scenery, and so he got up and rode with the driver. Then the young man reverently withdrew. He was very pleasant company, and I was sorry to see him go.
Bessie has always been dropping her plummet into the deeps of thought, always trying to reason out the problems of her life, always searching for the light. One day, Allison said to her, There, there, child, you must not cry for little things. A couple of days later, Bessie came up out of the deep reverie with a formidable question. Mama, what is little things? No one can answer that. For nothing that grieves us can be called little. By the eternal laws of proportion, a child's loss of a doll and a king's loss of a crown are events of the same size. Alice was not able to furnish a sufficient answer. But Bessie did not give the matter up. She worked at the problem several days, and then, when Alice was about to drive downtown, one of her errands being the purchase of a promised toy watch for Bessie, the child said, If you should forget the watch, Mama, would it be a little thing? Yet she was not concerned about the watch, for she knew it would not be forgotten. What the struggling mind was after was getting the satisfactory grip upon that elusive and indefinite question. Like most people, Bessie is pestered with recurrent dreams. Her stock dream is that she is being eaten by bears. It is the main horror of her life. Last night she had that dream again. This morning, after telling of it, she stood apart some time looking vacantly at the floor, absorbed in meditation. At last she looked up, and with the pathos of one who feels that he has not been dealt with in even-handed fairness, she said, But Mama, the trouble is that I am never the bear, but always the person being eaten. It would not occur to everybody that there might be an advantage to being the eater now and then, seeing that it was nothing but a dream after all, and there is an advantage, for while you are in a dream, it isn't a dream. It is a reality, and the bear bite hurts, hurts in a perfectly real way. In the surprise which I am providing for the children tonight, Bessie will see that her persecuting dream can be turned into something quite romantically and picturesquely delightful. With a person of her papa's high capacities in the way of invention puts his mind to work upon it. Bessie has the gift of concentration. This makes her a good listener, a good audience, for she keeps close track of what is said, remembers the details too, which sometimes make trouble for me, for I forget the details, and then I am brought to book. Every evening I have to tell the children a story after they are in their cribs and their prayers accomplished, and the story has to be invented on the spot. Neither of them will put it up with any second-hand contributions. Now, in all these inventions of mine from way back, I have one serious difficulty to contend with, owing to Allison's influence. Nobody in my tale must lie, not even the villain of the piece. This hampers me a good deal. The blacker and bloodier I paint the villain, the more the children delight in him, until he makes the mistake of telling a lie, then down he goes in their estimation. Nothing can resurrect him. He has to pack up and go. His character is damaged beyond help. They won't have him any longer. Sometimes I try to cover it up, or slide over, or explain away one of these lies which have blundered into, but it is lost time. 
One evening, during one of our European vacations, I was in the middle of the fifth night of a continued story, when I, which I intended should last a year and make things easy for my invention mill, and was gliding along like this. But the moment the giant invented him, the grasshopper whispered in Johnny's ear that the food was poisoned. So Johnny said very politely, I am very much obliged to you indeed, sir, but I am not hungry, and... Papa! He told a lie! I said to myself, I must have made a blunder. Johnny is compromised. I must try to get him out of this scrape. Well, you see, Bussy, Bessie, I reckon he did think what he was saying, and... Papa, he couldn't be because he had just said that very minute that he was so hungry. Yet I believe this is true. Yes, this is true. Well, I think perhaps he was heedless or just came with the first thing that happened to his mind. And no, Papa, he wasn't even a heedless boy. It wasn't like him to be heedless. You know how wise and thoughtful he always was. Why, night before last, when all those fairies and enchanted creatures tried to very best the whole day to catch him in some little carelessness so that he could get the power over them, he never could. No, Papa, all through the story, there was never such a wise boy. He couldn't be heedless, Poppy. Well, I reckon he was so weary, so kind of tired out. Well, Papa, he rode all the way on an eagle and have been a sound asleep on the whole day with a golden ivory bed, and he was two lions watching him and taking care of him. Now, how could he be tired, Papa? He's so strong. You know the other night when the whale took him to Africa and he went ashore and walked all day and all night and all was a bit tired? And you know the other time when... You're right, Bessie. I was wrong. He couldn't have been tired. But he never intended any wrong. I'm sure he didn't mean what he said. It was a lie, Papa, if he didn't mean what he said. Johnny's days of useless. Not Johnny's days of usefulness were indeed over. He was hard aground, and I had to leave him alone. He was the most unprincipled and bloody rascal, and if he could have avoided this one vice, he might still be with us nights to this day, and as limitlessly happy as we are ourselves. Romy once said this handsome thing about him. However, I will put that in further along when I sketch out Romy's little history. I have a little more to say about her sister yet. Of instances of Betty's delicate intuitions, there are many in my mind. Here is one which is pleasant to me, and its original sweetness is in no way impaired by my often thinking of it. Last Christmas Eve, Alice brought home a variety of presents, and allowed Bessie to see those which were to be sent to the coachman's family. Among these was an unusually handsome and valuable sled for Jimmy. On it a stag was painted, and also the sled's name in the showy gilt letters, Deer, D-E-E-R. Bessie was joyously enthusiastic over everything until she came to this sled, and then she became sober and silent. Yet this sled was the very thing she was expected to be most eloquent over, for it was the jewel of the lot. Alice was surprised and disappointed, and said, Wait, Bessie, doesn't it please you? Isn't it fine? And Bessie hesitated. Plainly, she did not like to have to say the thing that was on her mind, but being pressed, she got it out, haltingly. Well, Mama, it is fine, and of course it did cost a good deal. But why should that be mentioned? Seeing she was not understood, she pointed to the word dear. Poor chap. Her heart was in the right place, but her orthography wasn't. 
There is not a coarse fiber in Bessie. She is as fine as gossamer. From her earliest babyhood, her religious training had gone on steadily at her mother's knee, and she had been a willing and interested pupil, but not a slavish one. She had always been searching on her own account, always thinking. There have been abundant evidences of that. I will set down one instance. For some months now, the governess had been instructing her about the American Indians. One day, a few weeks ago, Alice, with a smitten conscience, said, Bessie, I've been so busy that I haven't been in at night lately to hear you say your prayers. Maybe I can come in tonight, shall I? Bessie hesitated, waiting for her thought to formulate itself, then brought it out. Mama, I don't pray as much as I used to, and I don't pray in the same way. Maybe you would not be pleased with the way I pray now. Tell me about it, Bessie. Well, Mama, I don't know that I can make you understand, but you know, the Indians, they thought they knew, and they had a great many gods. We now know that they were wrong. By and by, maybe it will be found out that we are wrong, too. So now I only pray that there may be a God and a heaven, or maybe something better. It is the garnered doubt and hope of all the centuries compacted into a sentence and by a child. She is a great treasure to us. Indeed, we couldn't do without Bessie. Life would be flat without her stimulating presence. She's not clay. She is a spirit, generally in motion, seldom still, a sort of glimpse of frolicking sea waves flashing in the sun, seldom a cloud shadow drifting over them in these later times. She is all life, and soap bubbles and rainbows and fireworks, and anything else that has spring and sparkle and energy and intensity for its makeup. She never talks much. I mean, in her sleep. <laughs>